This Christmas, I opened a, a gift. It's a gift that uh, Kim had received in a previous Christmas and seemed to really enjoy. Audrey received the same gift uh, this Christmas, but it was uh, something unique. Inside of it looked like a medicine syringe. And then with that, there was a tiny little bottle with blue fluid. And apparently, I'm supposed to spit into this syringe and then mail it off somewhere. Anybody outside of my family like to take a guess of what this Christmas gift was? Owen? Yes, that's it. So, Ancestry DNA. I am not selling this kit today, but that gives you an idea of uh, kind of the gift. I have not done the spit thing yet, so maybe that'll be uh, tonight. I'll do that. But I just, it's been on my desk. Uh, Kim did it and uh, was, was just enthralled to learn more about her ancestry and her background. Uh, Audrey's already done it since Christmas, and so she sent, you know, the results to us and screenshots and all these things. And it actually helped, those of you who know Audrey, for many, many years, she's had different health issues, um, and we really couldn't figure out, you know, is it rheumatoid arthritis? What is it that she's facing? And in part, some of the results of Kim's DNA testing showed that uh, Kim and and her family, and then obviously through Kim, um, Audrey, has some roots in the Mediterranean. And there is a rare autoimmune condition called Bichette's. And so knowing that Kim had those roots in the Mediterranean and then then a a plethora of exams and blood work and doctors, uh, they finally come to a conclusion that Audrey most likely has this autoimmune condition called Bichette's. And so part of that, it was through, you know, this ancestry DNA. And it's, it's very interesting. You can kind of plug in to your family tree, those who you know, and then as different and more people take that test within your family links, you can learn more and more and more about your family. Now, why is that important to First Peter? At the lowest level, or at the most basic level, every single one of us represent our family. So you have a family name. For some of you, that's the last name. For others, it might be the last two names in your name, just depending on the culture of how that is done. But all of us represent at least our family. Now, besides that, as we, as we saw last week, as you introduced yourself to the person next to you, and you said two or three things like, I am, we all represent other things as well. Uh, but certainly, we are to represent uh, Jesus Christ. So as we see the you know, ancestry DNA, the next slide shows, uh, as it's coming, nope, all right, we'll try this, okay, so next thing shows that, but then notice this, notice this next verse um, here in John 15, 13. One of the cool things as we celebrate the fourth anniversary and friend day is that those of you who know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, those who are are redeemed, who have been uh, saved and forgiven, we represent a friend. We represent a friend that is uh, extremely close. We represent a friend who has even given his life for us on the cross Represent a friend who at one time kneeled down and washed the feet of his other friends. And we learn that that friend is Jesus Christ. And we see this in John chapter 15 and verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. 
And then if you want to follow along until we get the screens ready, if you want to follow along in John, we're going to read the next verse. So John chapter 15 and verse 14. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, verse 15, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I've heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And this is, this is where it's very clear that we're to be representatives. We're to show, hey, I, I represent Jesus Christ. He's my friend and my Savior. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, verse 17 says, so that you will love one another. So last week, kind of summarized, those of you who are just jumping into the series in 1 Peter, uh, as we're looking at an heir of the living hope, and we're building a profile of a believer, all the characteristics of someone who knows Christ as their Savior. Last week, we began to look at this passage, talking about being a representative of Christ. So in quick summary, who do we represent? Well, we represent the living hope. It says, as you come to the living stone, talking about Jesus Christ. It's not something that we look back to, but we can come regularly to Jesus Christ. He's still alive. So he's the living hope. 1 Peter 1, 23, last week we saw he's the living word. John 1 talks about the logos in Greek, or the word was God and the word, or was with God and the word was God. And then John 1 continues to talk about how Jesus took upon himself the form of of a man and dwelt among us, uh, Emmanuel, God with us, we just sang. And then this passage, the living stone, as we come into 1 Peter chapter 2, we see the living stone. He's rejected by many in verse 4. We see that all over the world. It is a, it is a gift that can be accepted or rejected. God does not want robots. He doesn't uh, manipulate. He doesn't force people into a decision so certainly he's rejected by many, but he's also received by some. So now as we go forward, that's who we represent, but how? How do you represent Jesus Christ? I mean, how do you represent God? Well, Peter uses some interesting metaphors, and at first, they don't quite, at least in our context today, they don't quite ring a bell initially. He talks about a building or a temple. I mean, how, how am I going to represent a building. How do I represent a, a temple? So we'll see some of these metaphors, but look with me in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. You are to represent, if you're a believer, if you know Christ as your Savior, you're to represent Christ as the temple of God. Now, Christ was the first one in Matthew who even brought up this idea of building his church. Acts 2 and following, we see the, the church and the early church uh, growing, and we learn more about the church. The day of Pentecost is often the, the day we look back to as kind of the official beginning of the local church as we know it. But Jesus had already said in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18, he said this, And I tell you, you are Peter, is one of the disciples, and on this rock, Peter had just said, you are the son of the living God. So Peter had just made that declaration, and then Jesus says this, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, the declaration that he had just said that Jesus was the son of God, on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. 
Now, one thing I, I really love about this verse, and I, I had not noticed until a few years ago when someone was preaching on this passage and kind of brought this up, but as we look at this passage, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Understand that, that gates don't move forward. Gates are to protect. Gates are to defend. So in this passage, the church is the one on the advance. The church is the one who is who's going against the loss, the lostness, and, and, and revealing Jesus Christ as Savior. So hell is on defense. Oftentimes we as believers kind of think that we're on defense. But when Christ is on our side, it says the gates of hell will not prevail against the body, the church of Jesus Christ. So as we think about you know, building his church and even the temple, uh, as we look at the life of Christ, Jesus in John chapter 2, we're not going to read the whole passage. It's, it's a fairly uh, lengthy passage. But in John chapter 2, he was in Jerusalem. It was the time of the Passover. And he's, he's in the temple. And he even says, you know, he, he throws the money changers out of the temple uh, he, was, he was greatly offended at what he was viewing in the temple. The temple in the Old Testament was a place that reflected the power of God. And so now Jesus, as he's in the temple, and he's, he's seeing it being corrupted just by um, uh, abusing, even selling things for more than it should have been sold for, and uh, certainly not what the temple was supposed to have represented. And then after after that, and, and he was rebuking those who were doing that, he says, you know, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will rise it up again. And there was an immediate uh, pushback on this, and they, some of them even said, um, the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. You find this in John chapter 2. And will you raise it up in three days? But John, in his commentary under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says that Jesus was talking about his body. So the Old Testament, we have the tabernacle and then the temple as visible, as tangible representations of God's dwelling place and his power and his holiness. Then comes God with us, Emmanuel, Jesus Christ in the flesh. And so now Jesus is saying, I am the temple. I am the visible image of the invisible God the Father. If you've, seen, if you've seen me, you've seen God the Father. I and my Father are one. So in the Old Testament, tangible re representation, this is where God dwells, his power, his majesty. Now it's Jesus, I'm the temple. But then we're going to see that in Christ, in the Old Testament, people like you and I, we would go to the temple. But because of Christ now, the Old Testament, God represented his power, his holiness, his dwelling in the temple. Jesus then says, no, my body is the temple. And then as he ascends and goes back with the Father, sits on the right hand of God, you and I as believers in Jesus Christ, we are the temple. It's not, it's not like I carry around bricks with me, I'm not selling a building. But now in me, because God dwells within me, because Jesus Christ has saved me, now you and I are representations of God's power and his holiness and his dwelling place. So in Christ, this is fulfilled. We see this, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5, Christ continues to build his earthly temple with his followers. He continues to build that temple. It's still in construction. It's still being uh, built upon. And in 1 Peter 2.5, it says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. 
to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So we see in this verse alone, spiritual house and a sacrifice is a priesthood. Paul builds on this truth a little bit in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And you can't miss that. We can't build the temple, we can't represent God apart from Jesus Christ. He is the foundation. So without that, the whole building falls apart. So he's the one that holds it together. I remember as I was studying about this, I thought about a young man that we became close to and we had a lot of interaction with their family in Brazil. And he he recounted to me as we were working together on one of the church building projects, he recounted to me the very first wall that he built with, with Block. His dad was gone. He was, he was still a teenager, and he thought, I'm going I'm to you know, help my dad with this construction at our house. And so he, he started to build the wall, but instead of, of kind of doing the blocks over uh, the, the seams, he did all the blocks just all evenly lined up. And he thought it was great because they were all the lines were lined up. And his dad came home and said, son, you got to tear the whole thing down. Because there's no, there's no strength, there's no foundation. I'm going to tell you, if you try to build your life apart from Jesus Christ, you may think, man, I've got all my lines figured out, I've got all my paths. But if you, if you try to build it apart from the cornerstone, the foundation of Jesus Christ, it's going to fall apart. At some point, we saw last week in the passage, that you are destined to stumble. In essence, if you walk in darkness, you will stumble. There's no way Around it. So we continue in Ephesians chapter 2 and then verse 21. Now, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into, get this, a holy temple in the Lord. In him, in Christ, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So, Old Testament, they went to the temple. God you know, revealed himself and, and, and dwelt in the tabernacle, in the temple. Jesus Christ then in the flesh, he says, no, no, I am the temple. That's why if you tear it down, I can build it up in three days. When he rises again, I'm the temple. Then now you and I in Christ, we are that temple. But not only that, we are priests. Oh, David, I, I've never told, had anybody tell me that. I'm not a priest. Well, look at the passage. As priests, we are to represent as priests under the high priest. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer sacrifices or spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then verse 9 of 1 Peter 2. But you are a chosen race or a chosen people is another way that that is translated in Scripture. You are a chosen race, a chosen people, a royal priesthood. So you are to reflect Christ as the temple of God, in essence saying, now God's power and his his forgiveness and his redemption can be seen through me as a person in Christ, but also as a priest. Now in the Old Testament, people went to the priest The priest was the one that would accept the sacrifices and then offer those to God for the atonement of sins. But Hebrews 10, 
goes through, it's a book in the New Testament, Hebrews 10 goes through and summarizes that what the, the priest did daily could never take away sin for good. Notice these verses in Hebrews 10, we'll start in verse 11. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. So as men and women would, would sin, they would go to the priest. Uh, by God's grace, there was a system set up where they were to offer sacrifices. Those sacrifices were to point forward to the coming of Jesus Christ. To the one who would be the final sacrifice. To the one who John the Baptist, one of the characters and, and men that God sent in the book of John, he would even, even say as he saw Jesus, Behold, get this, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So Hebrews is recounting this and saying, in the Old Testament, the priest who would receive these sacrifices and offer repeatedly, you know, day after day and give these sacrifices, but they could never take away the sins. And then verse 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, I love this, he sat down at the right hand of God. I, I enjoy, after a long day of work, where, whether it's being in the, in the office and studying and reading emails and making phone calls, or whether it's outside, you know, cutting grass and, and, and cutting up stuff and burning debris, but I enjoy, at some point, being able to sit down and just say, it's, the work for the day is done. And Jesus sat down because it was, it was finished. He had offered himself as the final and perfect sacrifice. Verse 13, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sacrificed or sanctified. So instead of going to the priest, now you and I are priests. Well, pastor, I don't plan on doing any sacrifices, okay? I don't, I, that's just not, what does that mean then? Well, we're priests by way of our open access to Christ. Notice again, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4. As you come to him. It doesn't say as you go to a priest. It doesn't say as you go to a pastor, as you go to someone that's, that's older in the faith. But it says, as you, Peter is talking to the elect exiles, those that have been scattered. He says, as you come to him, you have access to Jesus, the great high priest. You have open access to Christ. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. And then as we go back to Hebrews for a little bit more information about our, our relationship now and our open access to God. Notice this in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And then notice this next verse, which is, I love it. Let us then with confidence, not with shame, not with fear 
um, not just like once a year, but let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You don't have to wait until the gathering time at One Hope Church on Sunday mornings to have access to God. You don't have to go to a specific location and into any type of of booth or, or, or sitting to be able to talk to someone and confess your sins. Thank God because of Christ, because of our great high priest who once for all gave that sacrifice and the curtain was torn and indicating again, we have open access to God. That's why we as believers, we are part of the priesthood of believers, Not that we offer sacrifices. Jesus has already done that. But I have access to God. I can pray to him. I can talk to him. I can point others who don't know Christ yet. And I don't have to say, hey, let me take you to the priest. Let me take you to the pastor. Any person that's a child of God can go to someone else who is not and say, let me introduce you to Jesus Christ, my great high priest. The one who's paid the price for your sins and for mine. That's what it means to represent as Christ. Now, beyond that, by way of our open access to Christ, but also through the sacrifices offered through Christ. So what are those sacrifices? If they're not lambs, if they're not doves, if they're not, you know, this, this or that, then what are the sacrifices that a 2024 modern believer gives to Christ? Our bodies, Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Our praise is another sacrifice, Hebrews 13, 15. And some of you, whether you thought about that this in this way or not, but this morning, maybe on your way here, last night, maybe as you were taking a shower, certainly as you stood and maybe sang with us this morning, but every time that you offer praise to God, you're giving more sacrifices to him as part of the priesthood of believers. Hebrews 13, 15. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. If you, believers, if you come on Sunday morning and you think that the praise team stands up here and it's just a performance and you just, you know, are to watch, you're missing a huge blessing. You're missing a huge opportunity, whether you can sing well or not, but from your heart to be able to open your mouth and say, but I want to offer a sacrifice of praise with my lips to God. Now, those of you who don't know Christ as your Savior, we don't don't want to force you to sing, but think about what we're doing here. We're not praising the praise team. The highlight is not on us, uh, any given singer or instrumentalist or musician, but the highlight is, listen, we want to elevate Jesus Christ because all of us are offering to him a sacrifice of praise with our lips. Beyond that, we offer our works. Hebrews 13, 16. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Kind of together with this, maybe hand in hand would be the next thing, our resources. Paul, and throughout the book of Philippians, has talked to the Philippian church, the the local body of Christ in the city of Philippi. They have sent Epaphroditus with some gifts, and Paul, again and again, he shows his gratitude for all that they've done for him 
or for him from a distance. And then notice what he says in Philippians 4 and verse 18. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. And then notice the description that he uses. A fragrant offering. A sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God, Paul says, will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And then verse 20, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. As you do good works for Christ, this is not to earn your salvation. We, we are told time and time again throughout the New Testament that salvation is by faith, it's by grace, it's not of works. But as we receive that, the very next verse in Ephesians 2.10 says that we are created for his workmanship. So as believers, as a child of God, then now I have the opportunity to give up sacrifices of my works and my resources to him. You know what that means? Every time that you have someone in your car and you're serving them, maybe with a ride or, or going somewhere and you do it in the name of Christ, you're, doing a, you're given a sacrifice. Every time you have somebody sit across the table in your home and you're, you're talking and encouraging and maybe even serving food that could be even crackers and milk or whatever it is, that's a sacrifice. Every time you sit across a coffee table and you're, you're encouraging someone in Christ and maybe you pray with them or maybe even out in the hallway you say, hey brother, hey sister, let me, let, let's just pray right now. That's a sacrifice. It's being offered to God. Not to make us to look good, but to offer praise that's good and pleasing to him. In addition to that, we see our prayers. Revelation 8, 3, in the, in the end of the New Testament, says, And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense, so it's sacrificial language here, much incense to offer with what? With the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. So the words that I say and the words that you say as you talk to God, those are sacrifices. That you're representing God not only as the temple, not only as his dwelling place, but as priests through your open access to God, through the sacrifices that you continually offer to him. Notice next, we, out, we represent Christ and you represent Christ as citizens of heaven. 1 Peter 2 and verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. So Christ has called out of all the nations, not just select ones, but he's, he's called out of the, of the world, a holy nation of his people to serve and praise him. The king of this nation is Jesus Christ. The language of this nation is grace. In this nation, the one who aspires to greatness, like the king, are the ones who serve others as he did. In this nation, citizenship cannot be purchased. It can't be gained by bribery. Citizenship is only given because of the king's abundant mercy and grace through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The geographical size of this nation, you can't really pin it on a map because it spreads the whole world as those who are redeemed, those who are called out, which is the, the basic meaning of the word church, those who are called out are part of now this holy nation to represent him. This is one reason that wherever you travel, 
If you were to come across and you meet a believer, a brother or sister in Christ, immediately you have a connection. Just a few months ago, as I was in Indonesia, and I had never met this family before in my life, but in a, couple, a matter of a couple hours, I met a local pastor, his wife and his kids, and I felt such a connection with that family because of Jesus Christ. His citizenship was different, his language was different, his customs were different, the food they ate were different, but we were both part and are part of a holy nation that are brought together by Jesus Christ. So as we are these living stones, this passage calls us, the the individual part of God's spiritual temple, we've been strategically placed as as we're building up this temple, we're representing them then as priests. We are citizens of heaven, but then notice we're also worshipers of Christ. You and I as believers, you and I as the redeemed are to represent him as worshipers of Christ. 1 Peter 2 and verse 9. But you are a chosen race, chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and then notice, a people for his own possession. A people for his own possession. So as worshipers of Christ, one of the ways that you and I are to represent him is proclaiming who we belong to. Tony Evans made this statement I thought was, was impactful. It says, we're not special because of who we are, but because of the one to whom we belong. That's tough for us as humans. It, sometimes it's easy to think about, okay, what are the gifts that I have that somebody else doesn't have? What are the ways that I can serve Christ that maybe somebody else doesn't quite have that, that ability? What are some natural talents that I have, whether it's power or beauty or education or whatever? What are some natural things that I, that I possess or that I have acquired in my life that kind of set me apart? But the truth of Scripture is we're to proclaim who we belong to. We're a people of God's possession. Now, in our society, as we think about the United States of America, it, there's much value given on, man, pull yourself up with your bootstraps and make it happen, and anything is possible if you put your mind to it. Well, apart from Christ, the Bible tells me that I can do what? Nothing. That is countercultural. That is not a message that is lifted up. That is not something that you're going to see in the educational institutions of our nation that, hey, without Christ, you can do nothing. No, the opposite is said. By your own determination, by your own diligence, by your own effort, you can be anything you want to be. And I'm going to tell you, that's a lie. It's a lie. It's not to, to oppress you. It's not to say, don't, don't you know, look for dreams and goals. But understand that apart from Jesus Christ, all of your goals are nothing. You are to proclaim who you belong to. I want you to think about something that that maybe will help get this point across. Some of you enjoy sports. I certainly have through my life. I play much less uh, uh, sports now than I did years ago. But I still enjoy them. Think about sports memorabilia of the value that is placed on something that is owned or that was owned by someone else. All right, here's an example. Who's that? Of course, I mean, it's Michael Jordan. 
So Michael Jordan, when I was uh, a teenager, so into, in the late 80s and all through the 90s, this was the guy, man. I mean, he was, he was the one that all of us on the basketball courts were trying to imitate and we're sticking out our tongue and I could never dunk. I could even, couldn't even touch the rim. But I was like, man, I mean, if you could be like Michael Jordan, this is the dude. He's, he's good. In 1998, let me make sure, yep, in 1998, the NBA Finals, this jersey in the case was worn by Michael Jordan. Now, you and I could go online right now, we could buy a replica of that jersey for about 300 bucks, which is about $290 more than I'd be, want to pay right now, okay? So it's still expensive, still a lot of money. But the actual jersey that he wore in the series, they beat the Utah Jazz, it sold in September of 2022 for $10.09 million. Is the jersey itself worth that much? Absolutely not. Who knows how much it, may, it would cost to make that jersey? 10 bucks, maybe? And it sold for over $10 million? Why? Because of who it belonged to. This was Michael Jordan's jersey. This was the one, the last dance. I mean, this was when, you know, they won Utah Jazz and they, they beat in the NBA Finals. All right, so maybe you say, well, basketball, okay, that's interesting, but basketball's not my, not my thing. All right, next one. Now this, let me tell you, this is a jersey that's, I mean, you can tell the quality. I mean, look at the numbers. Distinct, bright, Sewn in? Oh, okay, well, maybe not. So, anybody guess whose jersey is this? Maradona, the Argentine great. Okay? So, did you know that, Frank? Oh, Frank's like, nope, Argentina. No, Brazil. Brazil's a thing. What are you talking about, Pastor? You should know better. All right, so in 1986, World Cup semifinals, Argent Argentina faced England. 25-year-old Maradona was in the game, and I actually watched the replay recently, but the first goal that he scored was actually deflected off of uh, uh, one of the England's players and actually hit Maradona's hand and then went into the goal. The, the refs did not see it or, or was pay, were paid off. I don't know what happened, but something happened. The goal stood, and so then it became known as the hand of God goal. Whew, that's kind of like sacrilegious. Let's put the lightning rod up. <laughs> but, so that was it. but then the second goal in the game, Maradona comes and he dribbles through every, everybody and he, win, he, he scores a second goal. They win the game. So this jersey became very valuable. After the game, he exchanged it with one of England's players. That player kept it, I think, for 30-something years before it was sold. Interestingly enough, this jersey was not their official jersey for that season. They were playing in Mexico City. It was supposed to be a very hot game. They had played Uruguay, I believe, before that and won. But the coach decided, let's, instead of our normal cotton jerseys, let's try to find another jersey that's a little bit cooler. So just a little bit before the game, as they were preparing, bought a store model jersey, sewed on the, at the Argentinian Football Association patch, and then ironed on that number 10 and all the other numbers. They were iron-on numbers. So not even worth the $300 jersey of the replica of Michael Jordan, right? But this sold, let me get my figures right, in 2022 it sold for $9.2 million. 
Why? Because of who it belonged to. Now, the exciting thing for me is I don't, I, I'm never going to have one of those jerseys. I'm just going to tell you right now. I'm a prophet, and I, can, I know I will never have one of those jerseys. Understand I said that in, in kidding, okay? I'm never going to have one of those jerseys, but it doesn't matter. Because I belong to Jesus Christ. My worth doesn't matter on any goal that I scored or didn't score. My, my worth doesn't matter on how big my church becomes or doesn't become. And your worth doesn't matter on what paper is published or isn't published. Your worth doesn't matter on what promotion you get, how much money you bring home, what size house you live in, what part of the city you live in. None of those things define your worth. But if you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, 1 Peter reminds us we are to represent him as worshipers of Christ saying, I belong to the King. And my value, my worth is only because he owns me. He is my Savior. He is my Redeemer. Secondly, we see that it's not only proclaiming who you belong to, but as you represent as a worshiper of Christ, you display the transformational power of your Redeemer. 1 Peter 2.9, but you are a chosen race, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And then it, then it gives, why? What is the purpose? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 1 Peter 2.10 then says, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now as humans, most all of us appreciate before and after pictures. If, if we're looking at a specific diet to go on and we see the before and after pictures, that makes a difference. If you were like me in high school and I was trying to put on just a couple more pounds, I mean, I was 135 playing football against David Raines in Athens Christian School that had 40-plus players. And so I'm trying to think, man, how can I beef up? I mean, I need to get a little bit more weight on me. So if I saw a before and after picture, hey, take this supplement and you'll gain 20 pounds in 20 days. Like, man, I'm all over that. Didn't work. But we like the before and after pictures. Who's, who's pictured here? Who? Why, why? Why are they popular? What's Frank's like, I have no idea. <laughs> they, yeah, they renovate houses. They buy ugly houses, and then they go in, and they do a complete you know, makeover, and then there's the, 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 the big reveal, and the family's so happy about all that they've done, and they've, they've created kind of a, their own kingdom of like all that they do. You can go and, and, and visit. They can go to some silos, I think, and, and see things that they've done. I mean, they're famous people. Why? Because the before and after is remarkable. What about these guys? Who? Yeah, they're brothers. Same deal. I mean, one's a real estate agent, so he like finds the place, and then the other one, uh, this is Drew and this is Drew and Jonathan Scott, I believe, are their names. So they're, the before and after, they they do these things because they want to show, and everybody enjoys seeing what is the difference, but nothing that they can produce. No TV show that we've seen, and I've been roped into watching some of these things, but nothing that they do. Either of those couples or anybody else compares to the before and after that we see and finish the passage here in 1 Peter chapter 2. 
Let's look again. So we see, we have before, 1 Peter 2, 9, out of darkness. That was our path. That was the path of life. We, we thought it was the right way, but Proverbs says the way of man seems right, but it leads to destruction. So out of darkness into his marvelous light. Believer, I want to ask you, does your life show that? Does your life show that, yes, I'm living in the reality of the truth that, yes, I was in darkness, but John 5 says that I was saved out of that, and now I'm part of the kingdom of the family of Christ. Does your life show that? Maybe you're here this morning and say, well, I'm not a believer. So my question to you is this. You have the opportunity Because all that Christ has done, not anything that you can do or have done, or even not anything because bad that you've done will keep you from this, but you have the opportunity to accept the gift of Jesus Christ who can call you out of the darkness that you live in into his marvelous light. As you try to figure life out and as you try to make life make sense and have purpose in life and you, you maybe have sought this and you seek this and you go after this and you come up short and you say, nothing has given me purpose. You're still in darkness. And I want to lovingly ask you and beg you, allow Jesus Christ to bring you into his marvelous light. Next we see in this passage, before you were not a people, And then 1 Peter 2.10 says, but after, now you are God's people. Before you were not a people, meaning you you did not, before I knew Christ, I, I didn't belong to God. I had been created by God, but I was not a child of God. I didn't have the worth that I have now because Christ did not own me. He, he, He was not my savior. He wasn't my redeemer. Before, I was not, and you were not people of God. But now, believer, you are. An unbeliever, you can be. God wants to be your Savior. Then lastly, before you had not received mercy, after, now you have received mercy. Every single one of us needs mercy. On my best days, I may not feel that way. But very quickly, and I've used this illustration before, but it's always powerful to me when I think about it. But very quickly, if God were to turn my TV on and begin to show across the screen every foolish thing that I've done or thought or said throughout my 47 years of life, very quickly, I would admit to my family, I need mercy. And so do you. Before, you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Maybe you're still in that before point. You go, I, I, I just don't think that I'm worthy enough of salvation. You're right, you're not. But Christ Jesus loves you still. That's the mystery that we sang about earlier. That's the, that's the beautiful insanity. Why does God want to be with me? Because he loves you and he loves me. A song that's sung by the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir. It's in New York. A group of believers from all over the nation, all over the world. There are many scars, literally, and there are many scars emotionally that are represented in that local body of Christ, the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir and the whole church. 
But one of the songs that they have sung that has been a blessing to me in the past is I, is I even think about some who sing that in the choir of all that God has done for them. And then to think of all that God has done for me. That I wasn't part of the people of God, but now I am. I had not received mercy, but now I have. And this is the song. The years had left scars. The scars had left pain. How could he recognize me? I wasn't the same. I knew I should pay. And I knew the price for justice and law demanded my life. Yet his tender heart heard my desperate cry. He saw my past through merciful eyes. Beautiful. That's how mercy saw me. Though I was broken and so lost, but mercy looked past all my faults. Wherever you go, you can't go too far that his eyes of mercy can't see you where you are. He loves you too much to leave you alone. The justice of God saw what I had done. But mercy saw me through the sun. Not what I was, but what I could be. Beautiful. That's how Jesus saw me. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes this morning?